The Greeks gave us the culture and the language that the New Testament would be written in, but the Romans built the roads that the missionaries would travel on to present the gospel to the Gentile world. So the Greeks gave us the language, the Romans gave us the roads, and Jesus Christ would bring the new covenant in, and the prophets of the new covenant, so to speak, the apostles, <laughs> they will bring forth the gospel to the rest of the world, the new covenant completed in Jesus Christ. Welcome to the You Can Learn the Bible podcast, where we take complete Bible books and summarize them in single episodes. My name is Bodie Quirk. I am here with my co-host, Joey Rosek. I am so excited, Joey, to be here because I think we're doing something that's really going to help people understand the big story of the Bible better. Absolutely, Bodie. This is going to be a great episode for all who have been following the podcast so far because we're hitting in a section of the Bible that I believe a lot of people are not as familiar with. Yep. And so we're going to cover some ground today that's going to hopefully not only excite you about the Bible as a whole, but to get into some of the books of the Bible that many, even Christians, have not yet studied and explored before. Yep. So exactly. it's going to be great. No, I'm, I am really excited too, because I feel like if we can connect some of these important turning points that we're going to talk about today, it's really going to unlock the, the scriptures for people. Because I think you said that this is a tough section, but it all falls underneath this purpose statement. And I, Joey, if you wouldn't mind reading it again, what are we really trying to accomplish by doing this? Yeah, well, remember, God always is intentional and he has a purpose in everything he says and in everything he does. And the Bible has a great purpose that is unfolding in God's redemptive plan. And so our focus as we do this podcast is to understand God's eternal purpose revealed through the unfolding of God's story as we connect the Bible's most significant turning points. And so today we're going to be looking at some unique turning points that have to do, again, with a period of the Bible that we're calling the covenant challenged. There's four points in this section, right, Bodhi? And these four turning points are going to help us to really capture this section of scripture that has to do with the nation splitting, as we saw before, you know, the nation of Israel was one nation and it splits. Why does it split, Bodhi? I'll just say this, man's heart is often split and divided. And because man's hearts are divided, the kingdom gets divided. Yep. And therefore God has to raise up prophets that are messengers that speak his word, his truth, calling people to repent and to realign their will with God. And so that's going to be one of the key turning points that we'll look at. And then, uh, Bodhi, walk us through the, rem the remaining turning points. So we have, we have four that we're trying to do. And some of these we kind of combine because when we say a turning point, it doesn't mean a single moment, but it means a shift in the overall story. So once the nation splits, mm -hmm. God raises up the prophets. And now we have two nations, which we're going to show you as we walk through this episode together. Both of them, though, get wiped out. That's what we mean by dispersion and exile. And we'll show you that when we get there. But it sets up a time with number 11, where they return uh, and they rebuild. And then there's a period called the intertestamental period, where that's actually the break between the Old Testament and the New Testament, isn't it, Joey? So when I would actually mm -hmm. like, Joey, if you would, just tell us something that we need to know when it comes to the 11 and 12. And I'm going to take us back to the timeline that we left off in the last episode. Returning, rebuilding, where are we going in this episode? Some of these turning points. Yeah, well, one of the verses we can pick up on is 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, where it says, The eyes of the Lord are 
are searching, running to and fro throughout the whole earth Mm. to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And there's always a remnant that God is working through that is loyal to him. And, And those loyal servants of the Lord are the ones that will return, rebuild, and restore what's been lost in Israel. This will include the rebuilding of the temple, the very house of God. This will involve prophetic voices that are speaking the word of God to God's people. And the intertestamental period that you mentioned, Bodhi, is a silent period between the prophetic voices and then that one singular voice calling out in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, which of course is John the Baptist leading us into the new covenant. So we're kind of looking at where the nation was a whole, where we saw before in the covenant confirmed last episode, where we looked at the nation of Israel under three kings that started it all off, Saul, David, and Solomon. But today's episode begins with the descendant of Solomon, Rehoboam, and, and, it, and another man named Jeroboam, and how the nation split. And I think it's important to say this, Bodhi, because man's heart is always prone to move away from God, man is often divided in their heart. They're not always loyal to God. They're disloyal. And one of the reasons why the nation splits as we kind of start things off, Bodhi, is that there is a heart in man, as we saw in the cycle of the judges. Remember, we looked at that last week, and you have that beautiful picture there that we can look at of a man just turning away from God and idolatry, being judged by God as he raises up the armies surrounding them and, and allowing judgment. Then, of course, God's people do repent. We feel sorry for what we've done. We return back to God. And God so faithfully delivers us. There's deliverance and then there's rest. And then there's unfortunately man's heart showing itself unfaithful and the cycle continues. And so the nation of Israel was doing really well for a time under King Solomon and the temple being built. We talked about that time, but we're now entering into this time period where the nation splits. And Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon in Judah, part of the Davidic line, He sees that Jeroboam up in the north, he's essentially has an opportunity to keep the kingdom all together, but wants to make the yoke heavy, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And as a result, we see a nation split. Jeroboam to the north, Rehoboam to the south, and it's the wickedness of man being seen once again. Right, Bodhi? Exactly. So what we see here in this timeline, we're going to try and put this on a visual for those of you watching it. But if you're just listening, we want to make sure that you can understand how one event connects to another. So we have the nation of Israel, as Joey said, three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam becomes king. Of course, there's a civil war that erupts because he makes it harder, easier. So now we have two nations. We have the north, which retains the name Israel, and the south, which retains the name of Judah. And, you, and if you are looking at this, you, we just want to say Israel, the north does not last as long as the south. So we have these two nations that mm. were one, but now they're fighting against one another. But God begins to raise up prophets. And so, Joey, tell us about what is a prophet and why are they so crucial to this section of the Bible and which Bible books fit in this particular portion of the Bible narrative. Yeah, well, as you said, Bodhi, about how the northern kingdom is shorter than the southern kingdom, that has to do with the fact that there were 19 kings in the northern kingdom that were all evil. None of them were good. They're all bad kings. 
Yeah, and then we kind of got one of them, them, right? Yeah, you would like to hope that one of them turned good, but unfortunately not the case. In the Southern Kingdom, there were also 19 kings, but out of those 19, eight of them were considered good kings. At least for a time, they sought the Lord. Revivals had taken place in the Southern Kingdom. There were no revivals in the Northern Kingdom. And all the while, God is still speaking to both kingdoms, and those are the prophets. Now, the prophets, also known as seers in the Old Testament, called that because they saw spiritually ahead of time what God was going to do. When they began to speak, they had a prophetic voice. In fact, I believe it'd be good to even mention in the book of Amos, which is one of those prophetic books, in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And so the prophets were serving God by being messengers. And they called the people of God to repent, which means to rethink, change the way they're living, and to realign their will with God's will so that their hearts are united again with God. And that was the role of the prophets. And we're going to discover, as we see in the prophets, Bodhi, there are major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. Then you have minor prophets, which were shorter books of the Bible and minor in the sense that they covered a particular period of time in giving a prophetic voice to call the people to return. So does that kind of answer a bit of the question, Bodhi, or do you want to jump in and share some more? I just think when people read these books, like if you're in a church and someone says, open to Isaiah, we don't really have any clue of where Isaiah falls in the timeline or why Mm. the words that are there, what role do they have? And I think one of the mistakes that people can make is we just assume that because it's in the Bible, uh, we can pick out whatever we want. But we wanted to put this timeline before you so you can see that this was during a very turbulent time in Israel's history. God raised up the prophets to be his voice in a fractured situation that was not the ideal. And so they're so important because they reveal the heart of God, but they also are key to understanding that they were speaking to their time. So it's important that when we read Jeremiah, when we read Ezekiel, there are things that were for that particular time period, but they have a larger application when taken properly into context. But a lot of times people don't even know where any of these things go. So we hope that when you understand that we have these two nations that, again, these are united by the covenant. God has made a covenant to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant isn't lost because now the land is fractured. In fact, it even gets worse, doesn't it? So where what happened? So we have yeah. these two nations. Israel is shorter, and then Judah's a little longer. What happens to each of these two nations? Yeah, well, Israel is... Going, going through a time of dispersion. And one of the reasons why is that God judges them for their idolatry. And the way that he judges them is by raising up the Assyrian Empire. This began in 722 BC, before Christ, where the Assyrians came and basically took the Northern Kingdom and conquered it. And there were only really two prophets that were prophesying in that Northern Kingdom, Amos and Hosea, as you have written there on the timeline, Bodhi. We could also add Micah overlapping that because Micah is the only prophet that spoke to the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Mm -hmm. He had a prophetic voice for both, but none of the people were listening to this prophetic voice. And yet God still had an unfailing love for the nation of Israel. And so the Assyrians conquered it. They're now dispersed. You got Jewish people fleeing in all directions. 
You even have actually the Assyrians mating with some of the Jewish women. And that's actually how the Samaritans came to be. A little side note there. The Samaritans were the offspring of the Assyrian men who mated with the women to the north of the kingdom there. And so that's basically what's happening in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, which is going to last longer because they have more loyal kings that actually obey God and God brings blessing and revival to them. But they go through a captivity time known as the Babylonian captivity. This starts in 586 BC. There are three different attacks or besieging of Jerusalem in the south by Nebuchadnezzar. And that takes place over what we call the 70 years captivity. And Babylon will rule and reign for a period of 117 years, a bit longer than that, until there is a conquering of Babylon. But before we talk about that, as you rightly put up another turning point, Bodhi, we see that God raised up a remnant down in the south. Three different times of restoration under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, and under Nehemiah. And those are books of the Bible, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah, that talk about the rebuilding and restoring of the temple and its wall under the days of Nehemiah, where we see revival taking place. And so why don't you pick up from there, Bodhi, of what kind of happens on the timeline here and why these are significant turning points. They are, because what's happening is the covenant is being challenged, right? Because Mm -hmm. mankind is saying, we can do this without God. And so God uses, this is similar to the time of the judges. He'll use a neighboring empire to overthrow them temporarily, and then there will be a realignment. So as you can kind of see, we've now come up to what we call the Persian empire, where they actually go back into the land. Because remember, as Joey said, Nebuchadnezzar took Judah out of their land for 70 years partially because they were supposed to let the land rest every seven years. And for 490 years, they didn't let it rest at all. And so they owed Mm -hmm. God 70 years, as the prophet Jeremiah talks about. But I thought it'd be helpful to pause the timeline at this point, once we arrive at Persia, to kind of look at the land itself and the way that it changes through each of these time periods. So if you remember, if we go back, before it was conquered, it was the land of Canaan. Joshua conquered it. Of course, after the time of Moses, Joshua leads the people into the land, promised to Abraham. It's conquered. Then it's divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And we can see a little bit of a map. We showed this last time. But what's important is that Judah is already established way, way, way back hundreds of years earlier earlier, along with the tribe of Benjamin and Simeon down there in the south. But once they become a single nation under King Saul, we see that the nation is now here. They don't own the entire region. The coastal plain is still dominated mostly by the Philistines, but it expands under David and under Solomon. But we can also see some of the neighbors that we read about in First and Second Samuel, the ones who, who constantly thwart that. But the north and the south are already established, Israel and Judah as two regions, but there was one nation. Then the split happens. And so now we go from from one to two full nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But once Assyria wipes out Israel, all that is left is Judah for a time period. Mm -hmm. And Assyria would have wiped out Judah, except for we have faithful prophets like Isaiah, along with King Hezekiah, who were faithful to the covenant and God preserved them during this time. But we see that Assyria just starts to dominate. They're the world empire of this time. They start, you can see how they kind of grows, but they never overthrow Judah. But Judah sadly does get overthrown by the next empire, as Joey said, the Babylonians. And so it goes from here to now Babylon is the dominant world power. We see that the Medes mm-hmm. and the Persians are kind of starting to come up there in the north, as well as Egypt over there in the west. But we get back here. Ultimately, who overthrows Babylon, Joey? And how does it get us back into the biblical timeline? What's the next empire after Babylon? 
Yeah, after Babylon comes the Medo-Persian Empire. You'll see media on the map there. And that refers to this Persian Empire that comes. Really, Darius the Mede comes, Cyrus the Persian. We have this time period. In fact, the book of Daniel speaks about it really well because it talks about the big statue. Remember the 90-foot golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar made of himself when he had the dream that Daniel interpreted? But it wasn't meant to be all gold because the statue was divided into the different kingdoms. And after that golden head, which represented Babylon, came the chest and arms that would be of this next kingdom. And what's interesting about this is that the Medo-Persian Empire would be the empire that we would start to see God restoring the time of the southern kingdom in Judah. Because you remember, Nehemiah gets permission by Arctic Xerxes to go back. We see, as I mentioned, Ezra, Zerubbabel going back and restoring what's happening in the south. So this Persian empire has to do with that time period of the returning, rebuilding, and restoring. And you did a great job, Bodhi, showing us those maps of what happened in the progression of all of that. And I think it's probably important to say this as well, is that when the people, the remnant of God goes back and restores the temple during this time, you still see God giving prophetic revelation. In fact, the book of Haggai is one of the prophets that's encouraging. For four months, he's he's giving encouragement while Ezra is there restoring the temple. We see there's prophetic voice being given then. We already talked about Daniel and how he lays out a whole wonderful prophetic book and history during the Babylonian captivity and then the change into the Medo-Persian Empire, as we said. And we see Jeremiah is back in the land of Jerusalem prophesying and lamenting, which is why we have Jeremiah and Lamentations. So you see these books of the Bible that we are often familiar with the names, but we're not always familiar with what happened during those times. And so that's why it's significant to understand those three particular people, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, as key people during this restoration time, Ezekiel being another one we can throw in there, all important in the time of the captivity and the restoration of God. What's so important, as you said, is like they are back in the land. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant included Mm -hmm. a land, a people and a nation or a government. So God, again, the reason why we call this covenant every single stage here, the covenant is challenged, but the covenant is not abandoned. God is keeping his end of the covenant by exiling the people and by bringing them back. And so when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, which was one book originally, and we now see that the people are in the land and the temple is being rebuilt. We call this the second temple period. Solomon built the Mm -hmm. first temple. This is now the Mm -hmm. second temple. And later, Herod in the Roman Empire is going to renovate the second temple very significantly. But we've got a long way to go between that and where we are now, because our next turning point is, Joey, what we call the intertestamental period. And the intertestamental mm-hmm. period, as you said earlier, is is not found in the Bible. So this is a mini history lesson to connect the Persian Empire mm. and the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, which takes place in the Roman Empire. So what do we need to know? What are some high points in this section, like historically, that affect the storyline of the Bible when we get to the New Testament? I'm just going to put some up here we can talk about. Because the next empire after Persia, you can see right up there, is Greece. Why is this important and how does it affect the New Testament when we get there? Yeah, this is actually really important that our listeners catch this. 
When Alexander the Great rises up and basically conquers the known world, by the time I think he was the age of 30, this young man who conquers everything, you now are spreading what we call Greco culture. Greece basically gives to the world the Greek language. Now, why is that important? Well, the New Testament will be written in Koine Greek. Koine meaning common, Greek language of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. And so the world is primed to understand the language of the New Testament because of the conquering of Alexander the Great to the known world, which happened between 332 and 142 BC. Now, as as this launches us, as you rightly said, Bodhi, into the intertestamental period, what that means is that once Alexander the Great dies, there is these turning points, these very important historic points during a time where the prophetic voices have stopped. There's 400 years in this intertestamental period where there is no prophet raised up, no Mm -hmm. prophetic voice. And we enter into what's called the Ptolemaic period and the Seleucid period. And Bodhi, I'll let you talk about that, but I'll just say this. This is all the preliminary history that happens right before the rise of the Roman Empire. And I'll say a few words about the Roman Empire once you get there, but why don't you just Walk us through a little bit of the history in this intertestamental period, Bodhi. Yeah, so what's important is Alexander the Great does a process that is called Hellenization. And as Joey just said, Hellenization is the formal term for the rampant spread of Greek culture and philosophy. So it's not just mm-hmm. the language, but it's the worldview. That's right. It's the- it's the gods. Mm. You got to understand what it would be like to be a covenant Jew in a world that now is being dominated by Greek culture. Greek culture tended to be very sensuous, very fleshly, very opposite to the covenant loyalty of those committed to Yahweh. So the Jews find themselves in this very unique, difficult point where the world around them is changing and they have to, they have to decide, are we going to change with the culture? Or are we going to stay loyal to the covenant to which forms our national identity? And Bodhi, If I could jump in really quick there, we all have heard of Socrates. We've all heard of Plato. The philosophers were developing their wisdom through this time. And this is where when the Bible says professing to be wise, they become fools. Mm. This is a time where we see a lot of worship to the false gods. We talk about Greek and Rome mythology because it's contrary to the theology of the true and living God. But all of these factors, as you rightly said, are part of the Hellenistic culture. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, it's no surprise where when Paul's preaching and all these things, we see all of these Hellenistic gods in the cities, like in Ephesus, where you have Diana and the statue of her and the temple there to Diana, you know, all of these kinds of things. And so it's just so important that our readers understand it's in this time period where a lot of these things are being established, right? Yep. So go ahead, pick it up. Yeah, and then thank you for saying that. No, you're exactly right because there's some there's so many things that are assumed to the New Testament reader that are never explained. Why are there these different religious groups? Who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? If you could right. understand some of the key reasons that things that happened during this intertestamental period, it unlocks the New Testament for you. So understanding the role of Alexander the Great, his role of Hellenizing the world, then there was a land grab. Basically, he dies suddenly. And now there's a scramble for all the regions that he conquered. And then we have the two periods Joey introduced, the Ptolemaic period, which was really a period of peace and flourishing. It was when the Septuagint was written. That was the project Mm -hmm. where they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the language, the Greek language that was common in that day. So this was the first time. And this was the New Testament, or the Old Testament. Which is most quoted by Jesus. Yes. Right? Exactly. Most quoted by Jesus was, was from the Septuagint. 
from the Septuagint. So this Ptolemaic period was a time of peace and flourishing generally, but it was followed by the Seleucid period where there was heavy persecution, most notably by a Greek leader named Antiochus Epiphanes. This is where he tries to wipe the Jews off the map and it forces them to respond. So Joey, what happens? There's a famous historical event that happens that transitions from the Seleucid period into the next period that is formerly known as the Hasmonean dynasty, but it's a period of Jewish independence. What major event happens during this point right here in the intertestamental period? Yeah, well, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus, also known as the Hammer. He helped lead a revolt against the empire that was existing there where the temple was defiled. This is right on the dawn of the Roman Empire getting ready to be started. And the whole idea of really trying to just squash everything that was holy about the temple, about God's people. And so with this rise of what's called the Maccabean Revolt, you have this understanding of even what comes around every Christmas, we notice that the Jewish people celebrate a day called Hanukkah. And this was also known as the Festival of Lights. And it had to do with during that time of the revolt, they actually put a pig on the altar in the temple. The temple was defiled. And yet the Jewish people are now having independence because they fight against this whole resistance of their faith. In fact, there's this beautiful story where the oil was found, but only enough for one day. And yet they found that the oil lasted not for just one day, but for the whole week, eight days, actually. And so the amazing thing is Hanukkah, the festival of lights, is that the light kept shining and that the oil kept burning miraculously. And Jesus even celebrates this in the Gospel of John we discover, and goes in on the Festival of Lights. And so this all happens in this very unique end of the intertestamental period. And it is in the dawn of the rise of the Roman Empire. And it's in the prelude of what's about to happen when we enter into the new covenant time. Exactly. Man, that's so good. So good. So this now is going to be where we're going to go on our next episode, because once the Roman Empire hits, the entire New Testament takes place during the Roman Empire. So what's interesting about looking at the Bible this way, there are large historical blocks, sometimes where not a lot happens or very few things happen. But once we get to the New Testament, a lot happens in a very very short period of time. And that's where this is going to really become interesting. What's fascinating though here about this is that it's during this time of the Hasmonean dynasty or Jewish independence, when certain groups start to form, and those groups are the groups that are on the scene in the New Testament, groups such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, these groups that, that have some things in common, other things not in common, these rise out of this time period of Jewish independence, and they are in full authority in different spheres of culture and life when Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene. So we're going to pause here as far as the turning points, because we want to make sure that in our next episode on the covenant completed, we want to make sure that you understand how we get to the New Testament. So much of when we read needs to be informed by what has come before and who God is. Because that is ultimately what we are here to talk about, is who God is. And so as we kind of look Amen. at this map, we've come a long way, Joey. Any other thoughts about any of these four mm -hmm. turning points on the covenant challenged? And then you can tell us where we're going to head in our next episode. Yeah, well, you know, so we've looked at a lot today that I hope has gotten you excited about this period of the Bible that we call the covenant challenged. 
And I think it's important to say this, Bodhi, when we look at all the history, because I mean, a lot of years of history has gone by in the section that we just covered. Yes. And when you actually connect the dots, you see where there is a continual faithful word of God being spoken by the prophets. Again, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets, as Amos 3.7 says. We know that the book of Isaiah, I think this is important to note, it's the biggest of the prophetic books, and it's the one most quoted in the New Testament. Right. And it gives us the pointing to the Messiah, which is why, as you rightly said, Bodhi, we have to see all these significant turning points that's setting the stage for the rise of the Messiah. And I think it's even important to mention this. In the book of Hosea, which is where God is speaking to that northern kingdom that had all kings that were evil and that had missed the mark of God's glory, in Hosea chapter 6, if I could just read out this verse in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And you see that that this is all preparation for what God is going to do. It goes on to say, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Isn't that interesting how that's worded? That we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. And as you talked about the Grecian empire and then the rise of the Roman empire, the Greeks gave us the culture and the language that the New Testament would be written in. But the Romans built the roads that the missionaries would travel on to present the gospel to the Gentile world. So the Greeks gave us the language, the Romans gave us the roads, and Jesus Christ will bring the new covenant in, and the prophets of the new covenant, so to speak, the apostles, (laughs) they will bring forth the gospel to the rest of the world. And that is going to be an exciting episode next time as we talk about the new covenant completed in Jesus Christ. Yeah, everything has been leading to this, hasn't it, Joey? And so what we want to now do is we want to just leave you with this idea that Jesus is the ultimate turning point. He is the center of everything. Everything that has come before, the law, the prophets, the covenants, is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And then what's amazing is he is the ultimate turning point. And then everything that comes after that is a result of Jesus's life, ministry, and impact. And so when we talk about the early church, when we talk about the New Testament witness, and then we talk about the church past, present, and future. Everything is in the light of number 13, the arrival and the coming of of Messiah. So we're going to spend some time in our next episode, our final episode of looking at the summary of the Bible, starting with why it's so significant that Jesus of Nazareth came at the time and in the way that he did and what he accomplished and what happened as a result of that. Joe, you get the last word. What what should we be excited about learning in our final episode, The Covenant Completed? Well, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is the light of the world, the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. When we get to the new covenant, we discover that God is making himself known now, not through just through prophets, but the prophet, the voice, Jesus. He's not just a, a lesser light. He's the greater light, as John 1 talks about. He's not just the word spoken. He's the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus introduces everything that leads us into this new way of life. 
but he completes everything that had been previously spoken of. He fulfills the feasts and the temple and the priests. He is going to be the answer. And this is why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through me. So we're going to really enter into such a wonderful period when we get into the New Testament and look into all that we now hold dear as Christians. But as we say, Bodhi, you can't appreciate all that's in the New Testament and in this new covenant until you grasp all that had been preparing the way that was concealed in the Old Testament. So it's going to be great, Bodhi. We have a lot to look forward to. And this has already been great today. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Joey, thank you for your insights. We are excited for your journey deeper into scripture. So join us, if you would, in our final episode of this introductory series that we call The Covenant Completed, where we show, hopefully, how Jesus fulfills everything that comes before, changes everything that comes afterwards, including our lives, and we pray your life as well. So until we meet again, grace and peace, and we'll see you in episode six. Amen. Amen.